This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Black Lives Matter protests have been everywhere, including some of the most unlikely places. Zoe Carpenter reports on what's been happening in Laramie, Wyoming, Florence, Alabama, and even Vidor, Texas. That's a former Ku Klux Klan haven the Texas Monthly described as the state's most hate-filled town. Also, another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and Little Eric with Amy Willens. This week, Amy gets in trouble for wearing a mask, and Don Jr.'s girlfriend tests positive. Finally, Ella Taylor will talk about the new Netflix series, Stateless. It's about a refugee detention camp in Australia. It was created by and stars Kate Blanchett. She'll also talk about The Old Guard, starring Charlize Theron. It's the first superhero movie directed by an African-American woman, Gina Prince-Blythewood. But first, defund the police and reimagine public safety. It's a big job, especially in L.A., where we record our show. The city has more than 10,000 cops and spends more than half of its discretionary budget on the police. And it's not just the LAPD. There's also the L.A. County sheriffs, the police in the public schools, the separate police forces for the MTAs, trains and stations, the police at UCLA, and the police in a dozen independent cities like Beverly Hills and Santa Monica. For comment, we turn to Kelly Little Hernandez. She teaches at UCLA, where she holds an endowed chair in history. She's also professor of African-American studies and urban planning and director of UCLA's Center for African-American Studies. She wrote the award-winning book, City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. And she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant last year. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the LAPD. Costs taxpayers almost $2 billion a year. The mayor and the city council in L.A. are working now, they tell us, on cutting the police budget by something like $150 million. But the issue is a lot bigger than the budget. Black Lives Matter and the People's Budget Coalition are asking if we were going to design a public safety system from scratch, what would our priorities be? Thousands of people have participated in these discussions, 50 organizations. Where do we stand this week? We're moving so fast in this movement. I hesitate to give you an answer for this hour that will change by the next hour, right? Okay. So let me, let me take a step back and provide a, a little bit more framing for sure. where we're at. Um, there's certainly the effort led by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and the People's Budget, which was initiated prior to the uprising for Black life that we're seeing now. And that effort, um, the People's Budget has now gained steam and has brought Black Lives Matter representatives to city council to advocate on the behalf of the budget that they propose, which is not just a reduction in police spending, but also diverting those funds over to libraries and parks and schools and all of the services, housing in particular, all of the services and programs we know to disproportionately improve the conditions of Black life. In addition to this initiative at the city level, I do want to lift up the fact that at the county level, 
Los Angeles has been engaging in what's called the alternatives to incarceration process for over one year. And in March of 2020, prior to the stay-at-home orders and, and everything that came down, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors accepted and approved unanimously the alternatives to incarceration plan. I bring this up because that plan lays out um, a series of steps, actionable steps that can be taken to significantly shrink, if not abolish, our need for policing by investing heavily in mental health care, health care services, housing, and um, stripping away all of the, the social services that our, our law enforcement have been called to do over the last few decades. So we're fortunate here in Los Angeles that we've got multiple plans available, blueprints in place, and we're ready to go. We just need our local administrators and representatives to have the courage to fund those plans. Well, to get back to the LAPD for a minute, the top brass at the LAPD have been talking about reform ever since the department was forced to enter a federal consent decree in 2001. That lasted for 12 years of federal court supervision. The decree required the police not commit perjury and not fake evidence. Seems like a good idea. And, you know, investigate and punish excessive use of force. The consent decree came to an end in 2013. What has happened to the LAPD official reform efforts? I think when we talk about police reform, I think about it from the perspective of my training as a historian. So yes, we can talk about what's happened since 2001 and 2003, but let's look at the longer direct. So my response to a question like that generally is that we have tried police reform multiple times and in multiple ways across the course of U.S. history. At each turn, reform has failed, whether it's the Wickersham Commission of the 1930s, the Kerner Commission of the 1960s, the recent commissions and reforms after the Rampart scandal here in Los Angeles, the adoption of implicit bias training, the adoption of big data policing, which was supposed to wash policing of an individual police officer's biases. None of it has worked. What has been persistently exposed is that black folks in particular, but certainly indigenous folks, poor folks, Latinx folks, have been consistently disproportionately harmed by policing in the United States. So the question before us now is not how to reform this system. We've tried that and it hasn't worked. The question is how do we reimagine, radically reimagine our public safety systems that dramatically shrinks our dependence upon an armed police force and dramatically increases our dependence upon the, again, the practices that we know to improve the conditions of life, education, housing, healthcare. The list goes on and is quite well known. So my, my position on police reform is that we've been there, we've done that multiple times, it has not worked. We need to push beyond that position now. And let's talk about cops in the schools in LA. In LA, there's an armed police officer in every high school. I understand there's a total of 470 uniformed and civilian people in the school police. Student activists have been demanding for years that the school board get the cops out of the schools. And the good news is the teachers union in L.A. recently called for the elimination 
of the $70 million school police budget and using the money to hire more counselors and building restorative justice programs. Uh, The school police force says they've already instituted reforms. My favorite example is in 2016, they returned military-grade weaponry it had received from the federal government, including grenade launchers. Well, that seems like a good idea. Send those back. So if we want to talk about the Los Angeles school police, there's a couple of... um data points I'd like to add to this conversation. We know that back in 2013, the Los Angeles Unified School District adopted a school climate bill of rights. And that bill of rights, I think was a good faith effort to improve school culture and decrease dependence upon um, disciplinary approaches, punitive approaches. However, my research team at UCLA, the Million Dollar Hoods research team, which collects up arrest data and jail data from across the state of California, then we work with communities to calculate how much is being spent to incarcerate ourselves, our family members, our neighbors, um, and to identify trends in policing. Well, we worked with community to, to acquire the Los Angeles School Police data And we published a report back in October of 2018 on the Los Angeles School Police Department. And in that report, we looked at LA school police practices between 2014 and 2017. So this is after the adoption of the Bill of Rights. And we found a couple of practices that were alarming, that one in four contacts by the school police were of a black student although black students make up less than 9%, 8% of the school population. Nearly one in three of all arrests was of a black child. Um, one in four arrests was of a child who was of middle school or elementary age. Mm. The data becomes more racially disparate the younger the child gets. Um, so blacker, the, the data gets blacker as the child gets younger. In our data set, the youngest child to be arrested was a nine-year-old black boy who was arrested by the LA school police. And among Mm -hmm. girls, black girls are the most disproportionately arrested. So this is all data that we collected and we crunched. It comes from a time period after a truly good faith effort to reform the Los Angeles school police. The disparities remain, the disparities are persistent. Um, So the work that folks are doing now to seriously challenge how much we're spending on school police and to divert those funds over to um, school counselors, restorative justice practices by staff members trained in the, in the field. Um, The Los Angeles, the UCLA Blackmail Institute earlier this month released a new report that is based upon um, interviews with students in LA Unified. And those students identified what they say that they need. And what they said that they need is mediation training Mm -hmm. and support. They need academic counseling. They need general counseling. So the students themselves are telling us what they need to feel safe and to be safe at school. And so there's a movement afoot here in Los Angeles, as there is up and down the state of California and across the country. Um, led by students and led by parents to truly invest in the practices that we know to keep our young people safe when they're at school. And we should talk about the sheriffs. The parts of L.A. County that don't have their own police departments are policed by the sheriffs who also run the jails. 
Los Angeles incarcerates more people than any other city in the United States. That's the subject of your book, City of Inmates. The jails are run by the sheriffs. The jails are horrible right now because of COVID-19, in addition to everything else. The last report I saw was a couple of weeks ago, almost 2,600 jail inmates had tested positive for COVID-19, along with 340 guards and civilian employees. The ACLU and community groups have been suing the jails for decades, and right now the biggest immediate problem is the L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva refuses to follow the law in releasing records about misconduct and excessive use of force. We know he's reinstated deputies who are who were fired for dishonesty or using unreasonable force. What are we going to do about the jails and the sheriff in L.A.? You know, there's so many different ways to come at that question. First is to acknowledge the extraordinary community organizing that has been happening in Los Angeles for decades, but certainly over the last decade. And right now, um, several organizations are, are leading this charge and coalitions, the Justice LA coalitions, one I'll lift up right now, that prepared us for this moment. There's an opportunity in this moment in terms of reducing the size of our jailed population here in Los Angeles, that the, the virus, the global pandemic in which we're in has forced the hand of the sheriff and others to um, significantly reduce the size of the jail population by about a third um, here in LA. The struggle ahead of us is going to be retaining and deepening those commitments to, for example, bail reform, right, and ending the bail system so that folks can go home um, without fee and without charge so long as they have not been charged with one of the categorical offenses that you are banned from getting from getting bail. The issue that I want to raise here is that, yes, we've got a problematic sheriff here in Los Angeles, but this sheriff is not the problem, right? So I don't want to over-focus on this moment and this sheriff. The problem is much deeper, much more historical, much more structural. And so we got to take advantage of this moment and address the issues with this particular person in power um, while keeping our sights on the deeper structural issues at hand. And we have this chance to mobilize and harness a trend of the reduction of the jail population. So I think for me, that's the focus right now, not not the sheriff. And there's also a separate police force at UCLA. You're a UCLA professor. How are things going with the efforts to deal with the UCLA police department? I'm glad that you asked about that. Yes, I'm a professor at UCLA. I'm also a member of a faculty collective called the Divest Invest Faculty Collective, which has insisted upon a divestment commitment and plan from UCLA. Um, that is to divest from the UCLA PD and also to sever ties with local law enforcement and federal law enforcement um, to be able to reimagine public safety in our community, our Bruin community. Today, on Tuesday, June 30th, <laughs> we received a communication from um, Upper Administration, which um, announced that the university will be launching a task force for public safety 
and is committed to um, reforming police practice. For many of us in the collective, in fact, I would say probably almost all of us in the collective, that is an insufficient response that the world has told us, the uprising has confirmed that policing is harmful to black people and to marginalized communities writ large. And this is a moment for us to radically reimagine what is possible. And we would like to see the university and institution of higher education take lead at this moment and a commitment to establishing a task force um, and to continuing the practices of reform, again, implicit bias training, no more chokeholds, all that kind of stuff, is not a strong enough commitment, is not a bold enough move in this moment. So the, the movement at UCLA now is to continue to push for the full commitment to divestment from policing and investment in the practices that we know will keep us safer. Kelly Little Hernandez teaches history at UCLA. She wrote the award-winning book, City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles, 1771 to 1965. And she's featured in the new article at thenation.com, How to Make Defunding the Police a Reality. Kelly, thanks for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Black Lives Matter protests are everywhere in places you couldn't have imagined. Zoe Carpenter has that report. She's a contributing writer for The Nation, and she received the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism in 2018. Her writing has also appeared in Rolling Stone and other publications. We reached her today in Portland. Zoe, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start in Laramie, Wyoming. 32,000 people. I know it's a university town. That means it has a Black Student Alliance. But the rest of the town has got to be almost all white. What did you find out about protests in Laramie? Well, you're right. Laramie is about 90% white. And like many other small cities and towns across the United States, Laramie had one of these um, surprising and quite large Black Lives Matter protests. And not just one day, but they actually were demonstrating for at least 10 days in a row. Um, And I I spoke with one of the leaders of that um, effort, a a woman named Timberly Vogel, and she has been involved in campus activism for a long time. And um, one of the things she said was that this was the first time in her experience living in Laramie where something transcended the, the boundaries of the campus and got um, involved with the whole town. And, and that it really seemed like all of the regular demographic barriers um, to participation really broke down in this particular time. And how about Florence, Alabama? Uh, I know it's it's in northern Alabama on the Tennessee River. I know it as the place where the where you can find the legendary Muscle Shoals Music Studio, revered by people who love uh, music from the late '60s and '70s. The Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. This is where the Staple Singers recorded "I'll Take You There." 
The Rolling Stones went to Muscle Shoals to record Brown Sugar. Paul Simon recorded Loves Me Like a Rock. What's been happening in Florence, Alabama? Well, what I was interested in in Florence is that it's an example of a place where the uprising after the killing of George Floyd has re-injected new energy into sort of pre-existing civil rights struggles or other types of campaigns against uh, police reform or, in the case of Florence, historical memory. Um, so there's a group called Project Say Something that's been working to try to remove or at the very least contextualize a Confederate monument that's there in front of the county courthouse. Um, and that's been a struggle and, and it's been difficult to get traction within the community for that. And then now, um, amidst this wave of protest, people are connecting the police brutality in Minneapolis to um, this historical legacy of the Confederacy and, and of um, racism and segregation. And so it's, um, I think as we look at these protests that are happening around the country, seeing that they're not only just expressions of solidarity, um, but they're also you know, connecting the sort of big overarching struggle for racial justice with these very local ongoing battles. So there were marches in Florence protesting the Confederate statue. What's happened there with the statue? Well, so so the marches, just to clarify, um, they were they were broader. They were um, protesting the death of George Floyd and other people who've been killed by police. Um, and, and the statue aspect of it was kind of folded in with this larger uh, these larger demonstrations about racial injustice and police brutality. One of the things that happened was that there was a public meeting of the county commissioners um, that was happening around these demonstrations and they actually had to move to a larger room because there were so many people who wanted to speak out against the monument and to advocate for moving it. So the county commissioners um, are the ones that have the power and the jurisdiction and there's a pretty strong campaign of advocacy to get them to move it. It's, it's not clear yet whether they'll do that. Um, in, a, in effect, they're hiding behind a state law that protects monuments, but the organizers of the, of the campaign to move the, the monument have been raising funds to pay any fines they're related. And um, it's a problem that the, the commission could solve if it chose to. I also want to ask you about Klamath Falls, Oregon. This is the town for Crater Lake National Park, which is a wonderful place. But, you know, this part of Oregon, there's a lot of, lot of white men with guns. What's been happening in Klamath Falls? Well, Klamath Falls is really interesting. As you said, it's a lot of white men with guns, and, and they, they showed up um, in part because of rumors which have been sweeping suburban communities as well as rural communities about, you know, quote-unquote Antifa showing up. Um, and it's, it's interesting if you look at the, the way that these rumors are being spread. It's as if Antifa with a capital A is some sort of organized terrorist group that's coming to these towns. And of course, you know, listeners to this podcast will probably know that it just means anti-fascist and any of us can be anti-fascist. But so these rumors have been sweeping small towns about busloads of anti-fascist activists coming to riot and wreak havoc upon these uh, unsuspecting rural places. And of course, those are fictitious, but the response has been that militia members and other, other people with guns in some cases, um, in other cases, sometimes with Confederate flags, are showing up to def quote unquote defend their small towns. And there's a really interesting dissonance between 
what they expect um, and, and what they see, which is in most cases, large peaceful demonstrations composed of multi-generations of people, um, multi-racial groups, uh, kids, dogs, you know, grandparents, teenagers, just really diverse protests here. So in Klamath Falls, what happened was the small group of protesters essentially had to walk down the street in between rows of men, many of them with guns. Um, and one of the, the people that I spoke with said that he felt very threatened um, as you know, a black man living in this incredibly white town uh, with all of these men with guns standing around. But you know, he carried on with the march. And uh, when they got to their destination, there was a huge crowd waiting there of, of Black Lives Matter demonstrators. And it was a really, he said, uh, ultimately a very positive experience to feel like there were more people than he perhaps expected who were willing to stand up for racial justice and who cared about the issue in this community. And since then, have the uh, white men with guns continued to uh, try to intimidate Black Lives Matter protesters? You know, according to the participant that I spoke with, he said that they've gone away and that um, his interpretation was that they had been made to look sort of silly. You know, they showed up expecting a war. And of course, what they saw were just regular citizens there to, you know, exercise their um, right to, to protest. So they've largely gone away and that public space has been maintained by the Black Lives Matter protesters. And I think that's one of the really important aspects of this is, especially in um, rural areas that have a conservative reputation, is just kind of changing what is normative there and uh, what people feel comfortable saying and doing in public and, and reclaiming the public space. And then you wrote about a place I never heard of, Vidor, Texas. 11,000 people I learned it's a former Ku Klux Klan haven. Texas Monthly described it as the state's most hate-filled town in the 1990s. How are things going for Black Lives Matter in Vidor, Texas? Well, yeah, this is another place where we are seeing a, at least a temporary reclamation of space that has long been defined by segregation and brutal racism. You know, as you said, Vidor, Texas has a reputation for being an extremely racist place in terms of policies, things like housing segregation, but also just in terms of interpersonal relationships. And so when a young woman started trying to organize a uh, racial justice uh, demonstration there, some people in the area thought it was a trick. And, you know, someone tweeted uh, something to the effect of black people know not to even stop for gas there. Mm. Why would we show up to a protest? But it actually wasn't a trick. It, it was a real demonstration. And I believe somewhere between 100 and 200 people showed up. And, you know, that doesn't mean that problems in a place like Vidar are solved. I think we should be clear about the, the sort of limits of just showing up to a protest or two. But it definitely was, a, a, again, a change of what people thought of as, as normative and accepted um, in that area. One thing that I found really interesting was the degree to which um, all of these places have their own local struggles for civil rights and racial justice and that um, what is a huge national movement or really an international movement in, in some ways um, is also hyper local. And I think that's part of the power is uh, people are being inspired and um, fired up by what's happening around the country, but they're really trying to channel that huge energy into very, in some cases, narrow and specific requests for policy change at a local level. And so I think that's what I'm interested in paying attention to going forward is the extent to which 
this energy can actually translate into policy change. And that's going to be a very long process. Everyone I spoke with recognized that the marches themselves were a beginning of a conversation, a beginning of, you know, finding allies and, and finding ways to connect and um, combine energy. But that when we're talking about dismantling residential segregation, for example, and changing housing policies or reforming police forces, those are incredibly complicated tasks or well, not complicated. We can do them, but politically thorny um, with lots of challenges. You end your report for The Nation with a wonderful quote from a 78-year-old woman interviewed uh, at a rally in a place called Anna, Illinois. Tell us about that. So this is Mildred Henderson, who is a 78-year-old woman and a veteran activist. So she's been involved in, in other civil rights struggles throughout her life. And she said, I've never seen so many white people give a darn about Black people. <laughs> okay. um, and to me, that really that sums up a lot here. I think... This has been described as an awakening for many people, um, and I think that's true, but I think most of the people who weren't awake before were white people. I think, you know, what I'm hearing from, from the Black people that I interviewed is, you know, this is not, of course, this isn't new for us. This is not, um, the people that are being awoken are the white people who have um, been able to ignore these kind of systemic injustices. And, and that's what's the huge, I think, shift here is that suddenly people in these white communities um, are realizing that, you know, silence is complicity and lack of action never changes anything. And I, I think, you know, we're seeing this corresponding shift in public opinion about Black Lives Matter. And we have some polling results about popular support for Black Lives Matter and, and these issues. So tell us what we know about that now. For example, a poll released in the first week of June shows that 76% of Americans um, and 71% of white people uh, describe racial discrimination in the United States now as a big problem. And that's up 25 points from 2015. Uh, we're also wow. seeing, yeah, um, more than 60% of white respondents in another recent poll said that they felt the justice system is biased in their favor. Um, and that's again up almost 20 points from five years ago. So I, I think we should see this in part a response to the significant amount of organizing work that's been done by racial justice groups in the, in the past uh, five years or so. And, and it's not just an accident. I think it really reflects not only the um, increased visibility and brutality of the type of violence that we're seeing, uh, for example, in the death of George Floyd, but also organizing work that's, that's really taking place. And, um, and that people have been focusing on for a long time. So I think we should, I just think it's important to recognize how much uh, organizing work has been done and is being done uh, and the way that that connects to what we're seeing now. Zoe Carpenter, she wrote for The Nation about how Black Lives Matter protests are everywhere. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you for having me. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. 
Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and recent recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, lately we've been hearing about a new Trump, Mary. Who the heck is Mary Trump, and why is the president suing her? There are a lot more Trumps than we had reckoned for. She's his brother Fred's daughter. His brother Fred died in 1981 at age 42 uh, from complications related to alcohol abuse. Very sad. Mary was only 16. The reason we're hearing about Mary is because she's written a book. The Trumps are very literary, you may notice. Uh, She's written a book, uh, and it's called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. The Trump family is trying to suppress the book by claiming that Mary is in violation of an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, that was signed in 2001, two years after Fred Trump died. Fred the patriarch, not her dad. Uh, Mary claims she is not in violation of this because this non-disclosure agreement was filled with incorrect data about the estate and that she would never have uh, signed a non-disclosure agreement had she realized that she was uh, signing away a fortune rather than a nothing. All this has to do with the aftermath of the death of Fred Sr., the patriarch, and it's a complicated and exciting story. Uh, The will of Fred Trump, the patriarch, was written in consultation with Donald Trump when Fred was very ill toward the end of his life. And the uh, alcoholic son, Fred, and his family were left out of the uh, estate that the rest of the Trump children inherited. So there's a lot of bad blood. And Mary and her brother, Fred III, because, of course, it's a kingly Uh, dynasty, sued the Trump family when they realized they'd been left out of the will. They challenged the will and thereby inciting uh, Donald Trump to great anger. And he stopped paying medical bills for Fred III's son who has cerebral palsy. That was the upshot of when you sue Trump's, you lose. And most families, by the way, when they have a lot of money, they take care of the weakest members of the family, not so in the Trump family. And uh, what about Ivanka? I have not seen her in the news much lately. She's been sort of in a quiet phase publicly. She's busy with saving the planet. So she is now in charge of the One Trillion Trees Act and the Great American Outdoors Act for the White House. This is a global effort to plant trees, to conserve, restore, and grow forests around the world that was sort of fueled at Davos. She's the front person for climate change because they've realized this might be something of an important issue in the upcoming elections. But she can never say she's thinking about climate change because as you know, John, climate change is a phrase that cannot be said in the Trump administration. It cannot be written by anyone in the Trump administration, whether they're a scientist, a political figure, or anything. So that's out of the question. But she, so she said, this administration has made protecting and promoting healthy and resilient forests a priority. But that's not true. So I just wanted to add a little note here that Donald Trump and the officials he's appointed have systematically undermined, degraded, and outright attacked the laws that protect our public lands, the agencies that manage them, and 
the resources those lands represent, including our national parks. Um, Bruce Westerman will be working by Ivanka's side. He's a Republican from Arkansas, a congressman. Here's how he thinks about forests. Although technology has changed the importance of healthy forests, the forest product economy and their role in conservation have never been more important. So that's what really the One Trillion Trees is about to the Trump administration, forest products. So that's wood products, paper, et cetera. Now, another thing you make out of uh, paper products is surgical masks. Right, but do they want to wear masks? It's a question in the family. There's a certain uh, discord in the family over masks. And Ivanka has been a pro-masker. I'm sure that's a term now. She uh, was shown early on in the uh, pandemic making masks with her daughter. And uh, she herself is still wearing masks. She was just pictured with her friend, Bruce Westerman, her trillion tree man, both wearing masks in the picture. And this caused a Twitter storm among Trump supporters. And I wanna just read for my audience, our audience, um, one of the great Twitter posts that was put up, but there were many, many just like this, but this one sums it all up. WTF Ivanka, why do you support something you know has sinister intentions? Take off the mask. You're not a disease carrying death bringer and this is not a real pandemic. I know you know that. Very disappointing to watch you play along. WTF Ivanka, and that takes us to Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, they do not wear masks. And Kim, as she is known, known in the tabloids, was in the headlines, page one, on the 4th of July. Right. So, Kimmy, Kim Guilfoyle, who is Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, they went to a party in the Hamptons where there was no social distancing and no mask wearing. Then they went down to Tulsa. And then on their way to Mount Rushmore, Kim's test came back positive. So this is what happens when you don't wear a mask, by the way. So now she is off the campaign trail and her husband is self-isolating, he says. Her, no, sorry, not her husband, her boyfriend, Donald Trump Jr., is self-isolating. I wonder, of course, because I'm a mother, whether he's self-isolating and not seeing his five children with his former wife, Vanessa. And of course, we must talk about Jared. You're our chief Jared correspondent. What is this week's Jared update? Well, Jared seems to have lost some of his cachet and control at the White House, or at least sources in the White House are spinning it that way, because he's supposedly too progressive for the Trump base by promoting criminal justice reform explaining the president's feelings about Kushner's impact on the 2020 campaign. Someone close to Trump paraphrased comments he supposedly gave, saying, no more of Jared's woke shit. meaning that the president is not into uh, reigning in the police and that he'll end his uh, support for federal police reform legislation this year, which was weak support in any case. It's an effective acceptance that Trump believes he can't really pull in black voters with the amount he's willing to go forward in dealing with the police situation. No more Jared woke shit. 
We don't want to forget about Melania. Who could forget about Melania? Although she always seems to be trying to get you to forget about her. Um, <laughs> so last month, a, a book came out called The Art of Her Deal, The Untold Story of Melania Trump. Uh, it's by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist named Mary Jordan. And this book has tons of interesting little gossipy ge- details in it. But of course, with the Trumps, the most interesting part is the money. And this, the book manages to put together both the money thing and the gossip thing in a way that is quite juicy because if you all remember when Melania refused to come live in the White House at the beginning of the presidency, everyone said, oh, well, little Baron, he's in school and she wants to be near him in New York, blah, blah. So the taxpayer has to pay for her to be in New York and Donald to be at the White House. And it was considered a big, you know, deal. Um, but it turns out that she was not there just to be with Barron, although I'm sure that was part of it, but she wanted to renegotiate her prenup. And she found herself as the wife of the president of the United States in a singularly powerful position to renegotiate what had not been such a great prenup, apparently because she wanted to have a baby when they got married and he was not so eager to have a baby. So she bargained the baby into the prenup and lost money on that account. Um, So what with the Hollywood access tape haunting him as he is running for the presidency and then winning the presidency, she figured she would renegotiate and she did. And what she got was more money for herself, according to Mary Jordan's book, but also the inclusion of Barron Trump, who had previously been excluded, in in shares of the Trump businesses and Trump properties for the future so that Barron's financial future is assured. But the best part, frankly, of the book are these things. She read all 17 of his books. I can't believe that. No one could. That's a (laughs) loving wife. But Mary Jordan says she did it so that she would know him better, so that she would be able to behave the way exactly he wanted her to behave. She's so good at erasing her past that there were no bridesmaids at her wedding. Wow. No friends at her wedding. She speaks Slovenian and is a Slovenian citizen, and Barron has Slovenian citizenship as well as American citizenship, unheard of. And when she's at home with Barron in the White House and her parents, who are there also, they all speak speak Slovenian, and Donald Trump can't understand what they're saying. (laughs) It's too good. And finally, we get to little Eric, as we call him. He made a mistake last week. So Eric Trump tweeted a photo of Chelsea Clinton's wedding. Bill Clinton escorting Chelsea down the aisle, in which the recently arrested heiress and suspected pedophile Ghislaine Maxwell can be seen in attendance. And under the picture, he wrote, birds of a feather, meaning Bill and Ghislaine and Jeffrey, by extension. In any case, almost immediately on Twitter, the Twitter universe responded with many, many photos of Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein cozying up to Donald and Melania Trump. And we've all seen those photos. Anyway, soon after, Eric rushed and deleted his tweet without explanation. Amy, maybe we should explain that we do the children's hour not just for fun, although it is fun, but there is a serious idea underneath all this fun. That's right, John. Do the children's hour is because the children are 
exemplary of what the Trump administration is all about, not just in their politics and in their bad behavior and in their sort of lording, uh, entitled way, but in the mom and pop, this is a family business, uh, this is a dynasty, America is ruled by a royal family way, and they're important, and it's important to keep track of them and how they behave. So for the future, when Ivanka runs for president, which she will, unless they're totally discredited. <laughs> so someday. This has been the Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Tune in again next week for more stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for our regular feature on TV in the age of the virus. This is news you can use on Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. For that, we turn again to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Good afternoon, John. Well, today we want to start with Stateless on Netflix. This is a six-part series about a refugee detention camp in Australia. Kate Blanchett created this show, got it made, and stars in it. I've watched the first three episodes, and so far, it's, I think it's really good. It's based on a real-life story of a German woman who was also a permanent resident in Australia who was unlawfully detained in one of the quite notorious uh, Australian detention programs which have been written about extensively for their brutality um, and lack of humanity. And uh, in the series, she appears as a somewhat changed character. She's a, an Australian with a problem with an incipient problem of mental illness. She's very unstable and very vulnerable. And she, in the first episode, she was a, an air hostess and she leaves the, she actually gets fired in a, you can't find me, I quit situation and takes up with the members, uh, the leaders of a strange cult and those leaders are played uh, by Kate Blanchett and Dominic West, who are the, probably the most internationally famous people in it. Uh, they are played uncharacteristically over the top. And as a result, the first episode gets very sort of tangled up in all the setting up of characters and plot and so on. And my first feeling was, oh, this is just going to be awful. And then um, I would counsel patience because thereafter it turns into this absolutely riveting series that turns on four total strangers who are confined in a desert immigration center. One of them is Sophie who has now 
disguised herself as a German citizen named Eva, who wants to be deported back to her own country. She's in a very vulnerable condition. The cult members have completely exploited her and stripped her down. And she's on the verge of breakdown when she goes in. Another is an Afghan refugee and his daughter who are holding out for a visa and want to really behave themselves. Then there is a young Australian father who starts working there in order to support his new house and and his family. A very decent guy at the beginning. And finally, the bureaucrat who heads, the government bureaucrat who heads the place, who's trying to advance her career and gets caught up in a a national scandal. My worry when this started was that it seems wrong that a critique of immigration policy is presented mostly through the story of a white woman's dilemma. Of course, 99% of stateless refugees are not white people. Yes, and uh, of course, she's not a stateless refugee. But in fact, in its defense, I would say that the series as it goes on is pretty much equal time for all the characters. And it is a true fact, as you said, not only is this a true story, it was the story that became notorious in Australia and that led to the exposés of cruelty in the detention camps. Yes, it led to a government inquiry and also to a lot of media interaction around the world. I remember that, actually. But I also think that in part the series about how absolutely everybody who gets caught up in this situation, including the bosses, comes very close to emotional breakdown as a result of the the brutality of the situation. And in that sense, I think it's quite masterful. It enables us to describe the conditions, uh, to watch the description of the conditions in this camp where people have absolutely nothing to do day after day, including many children, some of whom have been separated from their parents. The conditions are awful. Escape is futile because they'll always be uh, caught and and brought back. They have these awful isolation um, rooms which would drive anybody into mental illness, let alone a very vulnerable young woman and a distraught um, Afghan refugee who doesn't understand that he's probably not going to get a visa anyway. And the vast majority are are sent home to their home countries where they've been brutalized, threatened, uh, and half their families are already dead. So the conditions are absolutely appalling. There is one, the only true sadist here is a woman who really likes to hit people. She looks to me as though she might be an Aboriginal. Yes, I thought the same thing. She's one of the guards, we should say. Whereas the young father uh, is actually a kind man who tries to set up swings for the children. What's interesting about him, and I think the series in general, as a recovering sociologist, I've studied this a lot, is that once you have been asked to play a role you grow into that role. And that's what happens to him. This is a portrait of a very nice man who is so anxious that he grows into his role and starts behaving like all the rest. It does not end well, of course. Well, we haven't really said much about Kate Blanchett here, who is, of course, the you know international superstar whose name is at the 
top of the show. I, I have to say the she she is not one of the major characters except in the first uh, the first hour. But in the first hour, she is in a little local stage play uh, product, musical production, and she sings. Let's take a boat to Bermuda. Let's take a plane to St. Paul. Let's take a kayak to Quincy or Nyack. Let's get away from it all. She is wonderful. We were singing that song the whole next day at my house. You know, I did not feel she was wonderful in this role. I actually thought she was just overacting terribly. Um, Dominic West was a, a little more persuasive because he's more low-key. She's a wonderful actress, but I, I just felt uncomfortable watching her here because she seemed so over the top. I will say that the, the series is directed by Jocelyn Moorhouse, who is a wonderful Australian film director who directed a terrific movie called Proof, which was about a blind photographer. <laughs> and I think that, that after that first episode, when it settles in, the directing is really wonderful. And it also shows you what this is like for, as, as the series ends, telling us that 60 million such refugees are locked up in detention centers around the world. And I would parenthetically recommend Ai Weiwei's uh, Human Flow, which is a, a documentary about this precise issue that shows us the world as an inhumane parking lot for millions of refugees who uh, run the risk of, of uh, imprisonment, brutal, brutalization, and death in their own countries. Well, I, I conclude... Uh... Hats off to Kate Blanchett for creating this show, for getting it made, for starring in it. Who else in the film industry has the commitment to do something really good about the fate of refugees? I, you know, Ai Weiwei, that's, yeah. that's sort of it. And well, he's not exactly a Hollywood figure. Well, one of the, the reasons I think is that I'm guessing is for, that she was able to make this series and that she got Jocelyn Morehouse to direct it is because the Australian film industry is infested with women, which is wonderful. I did an interview with Jane Campion once when she said, it's not a problem in Australia. We run the industry. Well, I want to switch gears now and talk about a very different kind of film, also on Netflix, The Old Guard, starring Charlize Theron. It's the first superhero movie directed by an African-American woman, Gina Prince Blythewood. I could not even stand the trailer for this, but I know you have actually watched it. I'm not much for superhero movies, whoever is directing them, but if I had stuck with it, what would I have found? Well, I'm not much for superhero movies either, even if they're women and played by the extremely able Charlize Theron, who can do almost anything. But I am a big fan of Gina Prince-Blythewood, who has made two other beautiful movies. One is Love and Basketball, and the other is the truly masterful Beyond the Light, both of which I highly recommend. So I went in with very high expectations. The movie has a very high concept. Um, it's about a, a group of immortal mercenaries who have, spent <laughs> who have spent several centuries saving the world and championing the oppressed. Uh, but now they find that uh, their immortality is not, their own immortality is not guaranteed 
they're not healing as fast as they used to was. Adding a new young recruit who's played by the very talented young African-American actress Kiki Lane. Uh, and they're confronting the fact that we all have to die while saving the world from an unscrupulous British big pharma CEO. Now, that is very high concept, and it's kind of interesting. But as you say, if you like well-directed, non-stop fight, fight action, <laughs> this is the movie for you. And, you know, Charlize rules. She's making a whole reputation for herself as a badass. If you don't, uh, the, idea, the interesting ideas get totally lost in the non-stop action scenes, one after the other. The screenplay, uh, which is by uh, Greg Rucka from his own graphic novel series, does not translate well from a graphic novel. So things are said like, Roger that, and uh, the world is not getting any better. I think it's getting worse, which is fine in a graphic novel, but you know, you just want to giggle <laughs> in a, a movie. So we've been talking about two shows on Netflix, the six-part series Stateless, that's the Kate Blanchett show about the Australian immigrant detention camp, and The Old Guard, the first superhero movie directed by an African-American woman. We've been speaking with film critic Ella Taylor. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Totally my pleasure, John. Thanks. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.